Kent Redford is a conservation practitioner and principal at Archipelago Consulting, established in 2012 and based in Portland, Maine. It's designed to help individuals and organizations improve their practice of conservation. Prior to this, Kent spent 10 years on the faculty of University of Florida, 19 years in conservation NGOs, with five years as director of the Nature Conservancy's Parks in Peril program, and 14 years as vice president for conservation science and strategy at the Wildlife Conservation Society. He was chair of IUCN's task force on synthetic biology and biodiversity conservation. Kent co-authored with William Adams the book, Strange Natures, Conservation in the Era of Synthetic Biology. Kent Redford, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you. I believe you're going to read a passage from your book, Strange Natures. Of course, thank you. The book, Strange Natures, which I wrote with my colleague Bill Adams from Cambridge, is an attempt by the two of us to engage the larger audience, both in the conservation community and those just interested in the natural world, about a new technology which is already remaking the world and has potential to do so even more. But it's a technology which has most of its applications in human medicine and agriculture and is just starting to climb the fence and get into the conservation world. And that's the field of synthetic biology, which is known by some as extreme genetic engineering. Uh, that's a name mostly used by people who don't like it. It amounts to a set of tools that humans have developed to be able to very precisely and accurately change the genetic code, the DNA of living organisms, in order to get those organisms to do things that humans want. So the applications in medicine are predominantly devoted at trying to make us healthier people. And they range from some really exciting work on tumor biology to work on the microbiome, which is all of the thousands and tens of thousands of species that live in our lips, our mouths, our guts, our skin. And in agriculture, it's primarily directed at, at crop genetics, trying to improve the productivity of crops, the nutritional value of crops, the ability of crops to respond to climate change and a whole variety of other things. So all of these, some people may have heard uh, of one of these tools called CRISPR, used to very precisely alter the sequences of DNA. And so this book that Bill and I wrote is about the impending intersection between synthetic biology and the field of nature conservation, but not an examination of the technologies per se, but an examination of the way that we are going to end up needing to think about the intersection between our ability to change DNA and what it means to be natural and what it means to conserve things, and whether or not we want to conserve things that we have altered. So this excerpt is drawn from the last chapter. So you will have been introduced to a variety of different topics, including the technology, including the deep and long discussion and rumination in human society, particularly Western societies, about what is natural and what is nature. There is no doubt that the idea of using synthetic biology as a tool to deliberately alter the genomes of wild species in order to conserve them is a tricky one for conservationists. Those who care about nature have come to accept, however grudgingly, that most ecosystems and species are affected by human activities, including those areas we in the Western world often describe as wilderness. 
genomes, that is the collection of all of the DNA in organisms, are subject to human influences in just the same way as all other parts of nature. They are not untouched. They are not wilderness. The idea of the genome as analogous to wilderness is a powerful idea, but it fails us for the same reasons that it does at the landscape or ecosystem level. Conservation cannot be limited by an essentially vain search for the pristine, the untouched, and by the attempt to maintain that idealized state. We see examples of things that mix the human with the natural every day in every field and forest and every city in the world. In an outside courtyard of the Honolulu airport, for example, a small pond surrounded by trees is visited by wild ducks paddling contentedly as I, amongst other nervous passengers, search for our airplane gates. Or late at night, coyotes in US urban centers and red foxes in the UK emerge from layers in the interstices of urban infrastructure to forage amongst discarded food containers. Synthetic biology raises specific issues relating to the naturalness or authenticity of species that have been re-engineered at the genetic level. If things are so altered, hybrids of the made and the evolved, does this disqualify them from counting as real nature? And to take a more extreme example, what if scientists coax cells to produce a novel organism that has not shared evolutionary past with any other living organism? Would the resulting living thing be an authentic part of nature? If it were released, should it be protected as a wild species? And if not, how many generations of independent living would have to pass before we might consider that it would win this accolade? The decision to edit the genomes of wild species for conservation purposes is one that the conservation movement must face. The editing of wild species to save nature offers its own distinctive challenges, even and especially because of the urgency of the search for a response the human degradation of the natural world. The nature that survives the 21st century is likely to be increasingly shaped by human action. Protected areas, urban forests, village greens, and water impoundments will all play dual roles, contributing to economy and society, and yet providing space for nature. In all of these areas, even in remote tropical forest fastnesses, there will be something novel about the nature that remains. Conservation faces a huge challenge in the rise of genome editing and biotechnology. There are threats and there are opportunities, risks and potential tools that could be used. The debates about genetic technologies in conservation will surely grow. Indeed, they may grow more fierce and less tolerant. We could shy away from them and fall back on the things that are familiar, the tools we have used in the past, or we could look forward to try to understand them and to respond to the challenges they raise. The prize is no less than a future still shared by migrating cranes, wallowing bison, and wandering salmon, an earth whose diversity is living, flowing through and around us. And that's the way we end the book. You really presented that we have altered the earth and nature so much, and maybe it's a way to reverse some of those things or to accelerate the adaptations that might naturally take place over time, but would not take place fast <clears throat> enough. Um, I don't want to use this word naturally because now you've made sure. me question the of word course. natural. Of course. You know, Raymond Williams, who is a literary scholar, says that the word nature is the most complicated word in the English language. And when you think about it, it started out being contrasted with supernatural that is coming from the gods. 
And it only later, through their various stages, comes to be associated with the sense of non-human. So you're exactly right. The non-human part is increasingly shrinking in the earth. Just lay it out and how maybe there might be a way for us to tweak our thinking while at the same time remaining true to core tenets of conservation. Yes, and worrying about the very good reasons that people have had to be concerned about these technologies. They were rolled out initially in agriculture, and they were patented technologies that provided profit to the large companies that had developed the technologies at the expense of smaller farmers. And this created a a level of pushback for very legitimate reasons that has persisted even though the tools have changed and the applications have changed. Those kinds of arguments have remained as very powerful echoes in the way it's now being received for conservation applications. Yes, because we've had conversations with those who practice regenerative agriculture, and they're going back even to not tilling the soil because it reduces soil fertility and the nutritional content and crop yields. So how does that work with, say, some of those movements? So probably because of the way that these technologies were first introduced to people, that is through Monsanto's application relating to creating herbicide-resistant crops and the inability of farmers to save seeds for patented reasons, this objection to the application of genetic technologies is often co-associated with regenerative agriculture and also with the organic food movement. But there is no reason that that should be the case. And in fact, although this is not my field, I, I read a lot in it. There is a strong argument to be made that if we are going to be able to continue to feed people, we must be able to alter the genomes of the major agricultural crops, as well as significant minor crops for continents like Africa. If we're going to be able to keep up with the changes in the climate and the increasing number of people and the increasing demands of society for certain kinds of food over others. So whereas I certainly all in favor of regenerative agriculture and organic It doesn't mean that you have to be against the potential application of these other technologies. And just to discuss some of those applications, and it might be pest control or it might be combating invasive species, there's a wide variety and that we're Mm -hmm. presently maybe encountering some of these modifications, but not yet in the wild. Yes, that's right. And so... One of the things that doesn't get talked about a whole lot is food waste. That is, there is a tremendous loss of crops through things like fungal attack and rodent attack and spoilage. So spoilage, it's a word that, you know, causes us to wrinkle our lips, but it's actually just the microbial world having its own lunch out of the crops. And so, for example, with peanut crops, aflatoxins are the byproduct of a microbe that is in the process of consuming the peanut. And it causes people to be very sick, if not die. And there is work being done now genetically modifying peanuts to make it much less likely to be damaged by aflatoxins. Or it may be that there are a whole series of crop pests that, for example, one corn must, or there's a blackening disease of bananas, these things that are really cutting the productivity of the crops. And I'm not an agricultural scientist. My understanding is we have a very limited set of tools to address them, but there are potential ways to use the genetic technologies to provide more food for people. So I don't want to say that 
organic crops is a luxury for people who can afford it, but that's really the case for many of the more urban settings. The food is more expensive for good reason, because it takes a lot more time and less application of pesticides, but it's not a solution that's going to be applicable for everybody in every part of the world. So on the note of climate change, the statistic is by 2070, due to climate change, one third of all animal and plant species on the planet could face extinction. How can synthetic biology help us through some of these environmental challenges? Well, first we have to say, should it help us? And that's the question that is currently very much under debate. I participated in the World Conservation Congress in Marseille in France in November of last year, and there was a very well-organized, very smart, very effective, very small opposition to any of the discussion that was taking place. There was a gentleman, quite a distinguished Frenchman with a double postgraduate degree in philosophy and mathematics dressed in a rubber rat suit who had written no gene drives across the body of the rat suit. And he went around buttonholing people, if, if a rat can in fact buttonhole people, um, to object to any of the conversation about these genetic te technologies. So rather than what could it do, there is a first question that we have to talk about, which is how are we going to decide whether we should do it? But if we were to assume that a given group of portion of society through a representative and fair process had made a decision, yes, we'd like to go ahead and try to, to use these technologies. There are a variety of ways that have been proposed, some of which have been in the early experimentation stage, but I should stress to my knowledge, none of them have actually been applied in the real world. That is outside a confined laboratory or modeling setting. So again, we're still talking about things that might work. My favorite example it has to do with the reef building corals. So coral reefs, as most people know, are a tremendously important part of biodiversity. They support hundreds, if not thousands of species of fish and plants and microbes and invertebrates and all sorts of things. They also are critical sources of profitable fishing, uh, both subsistence and commercial fishing for local peoples. And they're in real trouble. So the press has covered quite extensively the coral bleaching, which is what happens when uh, sea temperatures rise above the thermal tolerance. That is, it get, the water gets too hot for corals and they expel the algae, which helped them survive, um, which also gives them the coloring. So it's called bleaching because they turn white. And not in all cases, but in many cases, those reefs are dead in the sense that they have to be rebuilt if they want to become a living coral reef again. And there is work going on now on a variety of different fronts to try to see whether there are ways to modify genetically both the genomes of the coral organisms themselves, as well as these microbes, the algae that live inside them and photosynthesize in order to try to allow these corals to survive the warming oceans. And in the lab settings, they are getting some very interesting and positive results. It would be a huge deal to try to do that at scale, but that's one of the examples that would have, if it were to work, and if people were to let it work, uh, let it be tried, it would have huge benefits, both for biodiversity and for human livelihoods, particularly for subsistence fisher families.
I'm interested in the human implications. Do you expect an expansion of genetic modification in human populations as well? So there's a critical distinction to make in answering the question, and that is the difference between germline modifications and non-germline modifications. So if I modified your non-germline genes, if you had children, you would not pass that on to the children. If I modified eggs or sperm, in a way that in a germline modification, those modifications would be, at least in theory, transmitted to any offspring that are produced by the person who's changed. And that's the critical difference. And people are most worried about the germline modifications for all of the reasons, for very good reasons that are associated with the real nasty human habit of continuing to return to the question of eugenics and whether or not we should modify humans to meet some standard that we decide we want. And a particular concern in that question is who the we is. <laughs> because in the past, the leaders of this discussion were all white men. And so they were in favor of making modifications to produce more white babies. So that's certainly problematic. It was then, and it certainly it continues to be now. So all of that is about germline modification. So non-germline is the place where much of the work is being done. For example, they've already, in an experiment, I think it was two years ago, they were able to return a limited sightedness to a person who was basically blind as a result of modifying the genes in the eye. Um, there is a lot of work going on associated with cancers, as I mentioned. There is a very good evidence that there is a strong connection between the, the metabolism of the microbes that live in and around the human body and things that we have always thought of as entirely human physiologically. So, for example, autism. There is it's really exciting and interesting and still really early. There is evidence that autism is a result of a particular kind of interaction between the microbes that live in people who suffer from autism and the physiology of the human body itself. So huge field, a lot of investment, a lot of money being proposed, a lot of people who have suffered from illnesses that have never had a solution with great hope that these approaches may help them. Still extremely expensive by and large. So I personally am all in favor of the non-germline thing. And I think there are huge ethical problems with the germline, but I think it may be one of the things that humanity is going to have to face and probably is going to want to circumscribe and say, for certain kinds of things, we may be willing to do it, but for most things, we, we probably not. Do you think this fear of germline has shaped the public response to your ecological work? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. No, because I think people think about human bodies as an entirely different thing than the rest of the world. I mean, we have an hard enough time getting people to believe that biology applies to themselves, or even that humans are a species, uh, let alone part of nature and having this amazing microbiome and all the rest of it. So no, we're somehow, we exist more in our own heads and on our little screens. And so I think the agriculture to conservation link is very strong, but the human medicine to conservation thing, I think is probably very limited. And the world would be a better place if people did think about we humans as being more intimately connected with the natural world 
that is the non-human world, certainly the non-digital world, than we actually are. You know, we've also had a lot of conversations with indigenous groups, and I would wonder how to communicate the possible benefits of this to them. So there are lots of different indigenous peoples who have their own worldviews and experiences, et cetera. And so I am always aware of the fact that any kind of statement about what indigenous people think or don't think is is like saying non-indigenous people believe in one thing or another. So also, as is obvious, I'm not an indigenous person. And so what I can do is answer your question by talking about the indigenous people with whom I have worked and the work that I have read that they have written. So in this group, this International Union for the Conservation of Nature Task Force, we had one of the most impressive people I know. Her name is Aroha Mead, and she's a Maori. The Maori are the indigenous peoples of what is now called New Zealand, and she's a lawyer, and she has been active in this conservation organization, IUCN, for decades. So we were blessed to have her as part of our group, and she has very complicated and sophisticated ways of thinking about and responding to the kinds of issues that we discussed. And in fact, New Zealand as a nation and the Maori as a people have engaged in very careful and systematic discussions amongst themselves about what they think about synthetic biology and its potential use on the islands of New Zealand and in some of the areas that are sacred to them. And so people can read, they've written and published on some of this work. And again, the first thing to say is there is no such thing as a Maori position. There are some people who felt very strongly that this was a terrible idea, and there were the other people who felt it was an essential thing to do. And the reason that New Zealand and the Maori become an interesting uh, lens through which to examine the question you posed, Mia, is that New Zealand has a tremendous problem with invasive species, uh, alien invasive species. It was isolated geologically, geographically for a very long time in the Southern Pacific Ocean. And when Europeans arrived, they brought with them just a hell of invasive plants and animal species. So, for example, the biomass, that is the total weight of invasive alien wasps in New Zealand forests is greater than the weight of New Zealand birds in those forests. That's how bad they are. Um, they're an agricultural crop, but they're also competing with native birds for insects and for sap on the native trees. There are trees, tree species, which are held sacred by the Maori, which are in danger of going extinct because of a fungal disease that has arrived in New Zealand. And so these are the kinds of settings that they're using to consider whether or not they want to endorse and explore the possibilities of applying these genetic tools. And so that's going to be up to them and the New Zealand government to decide what they're going to decide to do about that. You are absolutely correct to point out that that sort of separation of humans and nature is very much more of a Western and fairly contemporary Western view than it is of many indigenous peoples. The question about whether you're modifying the genome and how that is modifying the genes of a given organism and what that means in relationship to other modifications is something that is the topic of the book and really at the root of most of the discussions and arguments that I've been in for the last decade or so. 
It's as if humans don't want to recognize that worlds exist at scales that are too small for us to see. So there's a reason that germs and viruses are so scary and that the COVID pandemic and other pandemics have been so worrisome to people because we can't see what's going on except in the way it impacts us. And this is true of the microbiome, this is true of diseases, this is true of the microbial world, and it's true of the DNA that is the basis for life itself. So we, there seems to be a desire to believe that at a scale that we can't see, our impacts have not been felt. And that therefore, when I come along or people like me come along and say, you know, there are people who are talking about making modifications at this scale, which you thought was untouched because you can't see it. It's sort of a gas and horror. Oh my God, how could you possibly do that? That's untouched. But of course, you have only to think about that to realize that that is not, shall we say, an evidence-based position. Because any modification that you've seen, the fish becoming smaller because of overfishing or certain kinds of deer no longer have as big antlers because the hunters shot all the males that had big antlers, those changes are in fact a result of changes to the genomes, to the genes of those species, which have then become manifest in things that we can see. So that's a tough thing for people. They don't want to think about things they can't see. And so they would prefer to think that it was all fine until we came along. And to get them to believe that it wasn't all fine, it still is not all fine. And this is about what kinds of change we want, witting or unwitting, because right now it's been unwitting most of it, with the exception of domestication. It's a scary thing to people. And that's why part of the quote I read is about the wilderness, because there is almost a belief that there is a wilderness of the genome, that it is untrammeled, it is untouched, it is, and if we just saved it, it would remain that way. And of course, it isn't, and it will not continue. Make the choice. You want to make changes or you want the changes to be made without your attention? Exactly. On another level, those things are happening, so we have to govern it, right? We can't just pretend they're not happening. I just want to say that we could pretend it's not happening. And that's happened through much of human history when new technologies come along, you're kind of, ah, I don't know about it. And so rich people capture the market and become richer and poor people become poorer. So, okay, we don't have to, but we sure ought to. So I'm with you on that. We could go into the microbiome discussion. You'd mentioned domestication and how that's been largely a positive. One of the common framings for people who are cheerleaders for the application of synthetic biology particularly in agriculture, starts with domestication. And the argument goes this way. We have been genetically modifying organisms ever since we started or discovered or copied agriculture. And so that's been through a process of farmers, many of them women, who noticed that there are differences in the quality of the crops that they're harvesting. And they are saving the seeds from plants that have that quality they like. And then next planting season, they're using those seeds. And they're again, selecting the best of whatever that characteristic. And those characteristics, many of them, if not all of them are based on genetic changes. So there's natural variation in the plant that became wheat. And it became wheat because generation after generation, farmers were choosing the seeds from the plants that had the biggest kernels, the most starch, 
And particularly interesting, there is a gene for what is called shattering. If you're a plant, you are making seeds because you want to make baby plants. You want to make baby plants that are related to you. And so you want your seeds to be dispersed. You want them to grow and be moved around and colonize other areas. If you're a farmer, you seriously don't want the seeds to be dispersed. Your idea is to harvest the grain with all of the grains still in the head so you can take it away and winnow it and then store it and, and eat it. So there is a gene that is called the shattering gene, which is responsible for causing the seeds on a head of wheat to drop from the head. So through the course of domestication, without a knowledge of genetics, as far as we know, the shattering gene was selected out of wheat. So that's why you can have a combine. A combine is about harvesting all of the grains because they're all still on the head, obviously. So that was a genetic change that came about through very careful selection on the part of farmers. And the same is true for all the animals that we've domesticated. So this cow gave more milk or the milk had a higher butterfat content. This horse had a stronger back. When I put a saddle on, it didn't end up with back problems and I couldn't ride it. So I want that one. I'm going to save the foals from that. Chickens and ducks and goldfish and carp and on and on. So all of that was a selection process, which altered the distribution of genes within the genome of these wild species, which then became domestic species. So the argument goes, we've been doing this for tens of thousands of years. So why are you so upset about synthetic biology? Because it's just the latest in this long trajectory of human altering of genes. So that's the kind of the overwhelmingly uncritical adoption of synthetic biology. Those who are opposed to it say, hang on, those processes that you're describing, yes, they did result in changes in the genomes of these wild species that became domestic species. But they were done over tens of thousands of years in long-standing socio-ecological natural contexts. And there was no specific ownership associated with this. And there was a broad spread agreement to use these things. Whereas, they say, this technology is coming in with a very purposeful, very short-term very non-embedded in a socioeconomic setting context. So we're saying that some university lab is going to be able to domesticate a tomato in five years, which in fact, that's been published. They, there's a new species of domesticated tomato, which came from a wild relative of tomatoes, and it was done in a matter of years by people in a university lab. And they're saying that does not count. It was domesticated, by the way, through deliberate altering of the genes of this wild relative to produce a larger fruit that wasn't bitter, that had a preferred set of flavors and chemicals. So it was domestication, but it was at hyperspeed. And that argument is, no, you're not allowed to say it's just an extension. It's actually something that's completely different. So you pick which side of that you agree with. That's not a science-based question. That really is a sense of how much you trust society, how much you trust science, how much you trust industry, and your own set of deep values that underlie the way you view nature and society. My name is Abby. I'm a junior at Wesleyan University and an English major there. Speaking with Kent was an illuminating privilege. Thanks to his expertise and thought-provoking discussion, I found myself questioning the word nature and natural. 
When did its definition become so limited, so concrete? When I push myself to think more deeply about what is natural, I find a much more expansive definition than typical connotations. Nature is the ancient mother of modern medicine, providing plants and chemicals. It is the ancient mother of modern technology, providing metals or energy. It is even the ancient mother of us. So our unwillingness to use these tools to then help save our planet seem counterintuitive. When did man-made become ex mutually exclusive with nature? I see a way, as Kent proposes, that man can use tools for and with nature, effectively reuniting the two. While thinking about the word nature, I wrote the following piece. Nature has a way of making natural occurrences startlingly unnatural. The howl of a hurricane sounds like the fury of a raging god not of this earth. The pain and beauty of a birth makes people believe in a meaning and a reason not of this earth. Fire's ceaseless appetite and frantic fingers grabbing everything in sight, feeding its open, gaping red mouth, reminds people that there just might be a hell, a place of evil and despair, not of this earth. We see nature and yet we interpret supernatural, although maybe that response is only natural. Human nature has a way of making natural beings startlingly unnatural. We sit in homes made from brick and mortar, or the metal of the ground, and call it man-made, not of this earth. New technology connecting person to person in a complicated web to share emotions such as pain or pleasure makes those feelings somehow not real, somehow not of this earth. Modern medicine becomes a magical mystery, forever estranged from its mother and father, plants and elements, now not of this earth. We see human nature and yet we interpret unnatural, although maybe that response is only natural. Nature has a way of nurturing us throughout all time, giving us food and drink, yes, but also giving us hope for gods and the tools for technological progress, indeed of this earth. While we are busy delineating her as un or super, she stays true to her nature, indeed of this earth. One day, perhaps today, it will be nature's turn to be nurtured. And instead of limiting our response to our limited understanding, it may be time to use the un and the super to save all that is breathtakingly natural in and of this earth. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, I was thinking about going under the farmed bee and the domesticated bee and the native bee. Yeah, um, yeah. super interesting. There are almost no wild bees. They're almost all domesticated. And it's very hard to find in Europe the wild relatives of domesticated, the bee that we're familiar with, that in fact is not a native species in almost all parts of the world that aren't Europe. And therefore, it just makes very difficult the conversation about the importance of pollination and therefore we should save native pollinators when most pollination is done commercially by hives of a species that is not native to, to the area. By the way, you can also domesticate microbes. There is really cool work about the microbes on cheese rinds because cheese is a product of microbial action. You are taking milk, which should have largely no, if it's pasteurized, it has no microbes in it. And then you are introducing microbes in order to produce the kind of cheese you want. 
And so the flavors and the textures are brought to us courtesy of microbes. And there is amazing work that's been done about the microbial communities that live on the rinds of cheese and how they're busy trading genes back and forth and there are domesticated ones that make camembert and on and on. So next time you eat a piece of cheese, realize that not only are your human taste buds saying, wow, that's cheese, but all of your microbes that live in your mouth all the way through your gut are also going, hello, we haven't had a visit from our camembert friends for a while and they're bringing the microbial community along with it. So there's a little from B to cheese digression. The importance of the microbiome, and you said the possibilities for altering the balance of the microbiome for those who have autism, but also how it can influence our thinking. A friend of mine who taught medical students used to tell her class, you are all being taught human physiology in 10 years time. All the students in your medical school program are going to be being taught microbiology because you have to understand microbiology and its relationship to understand humans and what goes on. And there are a set of skin-related diseases on humans that appear to be associated strongly with the kinds of microbes that live on our skin, which, by the way, are very different in the different parts. So the back of your elbow is the desert of your skin ecosystem. It's the driest, hottest part of it. And I don't think I will go into where the rainforests of the skin are, but I think it's obvious to most people. Anyway, the point is that other animals, all other animals, most other plants, and even microbes have their own microbiomes. And amphibians, uh, as many people may know, have been suffering terribly from this extinction crisis with hundreds of species having gone extinct from a fungal disease. What happens on the frog is that this fungal disease grows on the skin and it interferes with the natural uptake of oxygen through the skin of amphibians. And, and they basically die for lack of being able to breathe through their skin, which has been clogged by this fungal action. So there's really interesting work that actually is working on trying to alter the microbes on the skin of these wild frogs in order to try to allow their natural skin microbiome to be resistant to this infection by the invasive fungal disease. So for the microbiomes of animals and plants is also a key place for work on the conservation of those species. And another area where I think that most people would be positive to interventions is mosquito-borne diseases. Yeah, and that's a pretty good example of where humankind trumps the natural world. I think the two groups of animals that most people would just as soon have disappear are mosquitoes and ticks. I live in the part of the world which has fewer mosquitoes, but a lot of ticks in a growing number. And so there is a lot of work being done on species of mosquitoes that transmit malaria, but dengue and Zika as well. There are a set of really pernicious mosquito-borne diseases, which would cause enormous suffering for humans, particularly for, for little kids. And there's work that's being done on trying to genetically modify mosquitoes in ways that would decrease their ability to transmit these diseases and therefore to improve the, and there is similar, though less work that I'm aware of being done on the tick-borne diseases. And the set of people who don't like these technologies say that ticks and mosquitoes have as much right to live as do any other species on earth. And the answer to that is not a science-based one. It's a value-based one and how you weigh costs and benefits and impacts and collateral results, et cetera. 
there's a lot of really interesting and important work being done on that topic. A little background to your book, Strange Natures, really grows out of your work for the International Union for Conservation, the World Conservation Congress. But just tell us, what is your path? You started off, you trained as an ecologist, you worked for the Nature Conservancy. It's quite a varied life. You indicated you've lived all over the world. So, yes, I am the child of U.S. State Department parents and then went to undergraduate at University of California, Santa Cruz. And then, then I went to graduate school at Harvard and got my PhD. And then I went to on the faculty at University of Florida. So I was a university professor for 10 years. And through much of that time, I thought of myself as an ecologist. I had a particular interest in mammals. And within mammals, those mammals that most people didn't think very highly of. So I was fond of the misbegotten, the orphans. I like armadillos, star-nosed moles, tenrecs. I did my PhD work, most of it on giant anteaters. These things that really aren't very smart, but are super interesting and cool and very long-lived. So at Florida, as part of my research, I started to become interested in subsistence hunting by native peoples in the Amazon, which took me into an area of the intersection between ecology, really, and conservation. And I got tenure. I did the kind of university professor thing, but my parents had been such strong advocates of education and they had programmed me. And the end of the program was you get tenure and then you're done. So I got tenure and the influence of my parents then dropped away. And I thought, okay, now what am I supposed to do? And I realized that I really wasn't an academic. So I went off, I joined the Nature Conservancy to be the director of science for the Latin America Caribbean division and to run a large US government funded program on parks in peril. For five years did that and then went to the Wildlife Conservation Society, which is the organization that runs the four New York City zoos and aquarium and has field programs in 60 plus countries. And so I work across both the captive side, the zoo side and the, the field side and yet I felt that I had run my course and it was time to do something very different. So my wife, Pamela, and I really wanted to move to Maine. So we moved to Maine and that required that I set myself up as an independent person, thereby creating Archibaldo Consulting. And that, that came along at the same time as this growing interest on my part in synthetic biology and its impending intersection with conservation, which is still impending, but a decade ago, it was super impending. And the folks I worked with at WCS in New York, when I tried to get them interested in the topic, would say to me, okay, listen, I've never heard of this, but I'm going to ask you one question. This is what one of my colleagues said. If I learn about this, is it going to help me save tigers next year? This was a tiger biologist. And my answer was no, it won't help you save tigers. And he said, so I got other things to do. And off he went. And I thought, okay, so that's the right answer for him, but it's not the right answer for me because I am tired of being in a conservation world where we are the last ones to find out new stuff. And we only find out about it when it starts really messing up the natural world. And then we say to society, why didn't you tell us about that? So my, I set out with the goal of making sure that as many people in my world, the conservation world, 
that they would not be able to say, why didn't anybody tell us about synthetic biology? Because I would have told them about synthetic biology. And they needed to form their own opinion. I'm not telling them what they need to believe, but I'm telling them they need to think about it and form their own opinion. So that's that's my mission from God, was to do that. And uh, that's why I got asked by IUCN to form this working group and just had fabulous people on it. And we were just abused up one side and down the other by the antagonists who claimed that we were trying to tilt the field towards a pro-technology state, which we weren't. And so I've done that and I got the chance to talk to you and your audience. And I think I particularly want to say this, which is I'm 67 years old and the world of the future is only going to be partially determined by me. But I know there are a lot of younger people who you like to talk to and hope to listen. And these technologies are going to be things that you grow up with. They're not going to be foreign and strange the way they are to me and my generation. I attended a meeting on CRISPR in Boston a few years ago, and sitting behind me were two young ladies. I guess they were probably about 15. And they sat through this day-long worth of really technical talks. And at the end of the meeting, I turned around and I said, wow. I introduced myself and I said, what are you doing here? And they said, well, we got a pass from our high school biology teacher to come to this meeting because she is going to be teaching CRISPR and how to do it in our high school class. And we wanted to learn more about it. And I thought, son of a gun. So they're going to be 15-year-olds who are learning how to do these technologies that are now not completely, because there are school courses in it, but largely confined to university labs and companies. So this stuff is going to be like the cell phone technology. It's going to become part of the way people are growing with. And I would like them to be thinking critically about how they want to use these technologies as they grow and become the ones who are going to decide what happens in the world. Me and the older folks who are busy arguing, we're going to drop off the edge of the map and they're going to be the inhabitants of this world. And I really want them to have thought long and hard. And I don't know what they're going to decide, but I want them to have thought long and hard about it. So that's what I'm hoping. The other important thing I've learned is that much of my life was spent based on a model that not only had I not heard of, but has been thoroughly rejected. And that's called the information deficit model or knowledge deficit model, which says that if you provide people with better information, they make better decisions. And 30 years of my life were spent training students, doing research, publishing, telling people what management implications are. Turns out that people who study this say humans don't respond that way. And if you think about voting and advertising, it's completely true. So I spend eight hours a day being a scientist and I come home, turn on the television, and there's a commercial that has a cute little girl with a puppy selling cell phone service. And I'm immediately thinking, maybe I ought to change my cell phone service. So that's not a knowledge deficit. That's the imagination. That's the emotion. And I think that much of what people are going to be thinking about the natural world and these technologies is going to come about through works of fiction. And you have only to look at movies. One of my favorite is Dwayne Johnson's one called Rampage, which is about a satellite that drops CRISPR from the sky and it creates enormous gorillas that almost destroys Chicago. That movie and the Jurassic Park movies are really important in structuring the way people think about an actual technology. And when you say to them, as I have, that's a work of fiction, they say, I don't care. I know what's going to happen. I watch Jurassic Park. So if we're going to help this next generation have a better earth, 
just writing books is not going to be enough. We're going to have to be engaging in these creative arts, be they digital, be they film, be they music. So that's the code I wanted to add. Yeah, there's an emotional response and you have to inform it or override it or just get it to listen. Just as a sidebar, I just interviewed Jack Horner, the paleontologist who inspired one of the main characters in Jurassic Park the other day. Oh, great. Yeah. (laughs) So he addressed the divide between the science and the film. You know, it is a fiction. You mentioned high school students learning these CRISPR technologies. How long in the future do you think before the average person may have access to gene editing? You already can. You can buy a kit from Amazon that allows you to modify bacterial genomes and change the color of things like yogurt and what have you. And at least last time I checked, it would be a few years ago, it was under $500. And there are public labs with the equipment. If you pay a fee to go in to be able to use really significant technology. And there's an entire discussion about this DIY do-it-yourself movement in synthetic biology, which is an important source of the impetus driving some of this. But I think it's going to be like coding. That is, there are going to be a set of people who are going to be super excited. Younger folks are going to discover this is what they really want to do, and they're going to do a lot of it. And most of the rest of us are going to say, oh my God, I couldn't possibly code. I'm glad somebody can, and I hope they do the right things, and I'll use their products, but I won't do it myself. So I think it's going to be more like that than everybody running around and having a pet that they've modified. On a similar note, climate change and extinction operate on a really tight timeline. In order for genetic modification to be most effective, what is the timeline for genetic modification? When do you think that process needs to be widely implemented? So first place, and this is where you can tell that I'm a pedant at heart, climate change and extinction actually have been operating all the time. So we have been through all kinds of different climatic regimes and extinction regimes. So it's just we've got a particular window where those things are happening much faster now, but they are natural processes. So it's the pace and the intensity of them. You know, I think that what is happening now is that there is an unconscious process that is going on that's deciding who's going to win and who's going to lose out of this current version of extinction and climate change. And the question is whether humans as a species are going to be on the winning or the losing side of it, because the earth would be reasonably fine, thank you very much, if humans disappeared from it. In fact, the rest of life may be rooting for us to disappear. Those animals I really like, armadillos, are probably going to do just fine, thank you. In fact, they'll do much better if if humanity isn't there. So we are triaging now without most people thinking about it. So we're keeping the alien invasives that do really well. My wife works on a little nature park just south, down from here. The native species are disappearing, but boy, are the invasive plants coming in and they are thriving. They just love this hotter, drier weather. So that kind of thing is going on anyway. In order for us to be able to effectively change the course of this extinction crisis. There's going to have to be, with these synthetic biology tools, there will have to be a widespread societal endorsement, which will be based on a robust governance structure. And then there'll have to be the incentives for the developers to develop the products that we need to apply. I think the coral reef community has been moving well out in front of most other 
conservation science related kind of groups in trying to think this thing through. So I think most of the things that might be saved with synthetic biology are probably going to disappear if we keep up with this current trajectory of climate and extinction. It's not mm -hmm. a panacea. And as you think about the future and education, maybe you could share with us your reflections on the beauty and wonder of the natural world and some teachers or life lessons that were important to you. So despite everything, I am optimistic about the future of the natural world. And that's because it's not based on the continuing existence of particular species, but it's because of what I take inspiration from, which is the diversity and richness and interactions of life. I used to be a person who tried to learn all of the scientific names in order to be able to identify animals and plants. And I now find myself in a bit of a reactionary position, which is thinking that we ought to start a field called natural history without names, which allows people to experience the natural world in its totality and not worry about what each individual piece is named. And I just read a piece recently distinguishing between bottom-up and top-down attention. So top-down attention is what we're doing right now. I have to get my mind to focus. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to Abigail. I've got to think about the book. And that takes active energy to keep focused. Whereas bottom-up attention is what you get in the natural world. You see the light shimmering on the pond. You see that one red leaf signaling the early arrival of fall moving in the breeze. You watch, you listen, you feel, you smell. You smell late summer and the dry grass. You hear the cicadas. All of those things are bottom-up attention. And that's what appears to be most related with improved emotional health on the part of humans when being exposed to nature. It's this going to the seashore. And what do you think about the breeze? You think about the sound of the waves, the feel of the sand, all of those bottom-up attention. And that part of the natural world, I think, has been undersold to humans except through poetry, which is, to me, is very much in touch with those kinds of emotional responses. 2,000 years ago, most of the Netherlands was underwater. And now 27% of the country is below sea level. You know what? Wolves have showed back up in the Netherlands. Two years ago, their first wolf arrived, and it was moving through much of Europe. And in Germany, the wolves were hopping from German army base to army base. Why army bases? Because they limited firearms, and so wolves weren't being shot. So wolves have come back. My co-author and friend, Bill Adams, who lives in the UK, beavers, they've reintroduced beavers into the UK. And there's even a group that has brought European bison and release them into an area. There are some really exciting and innovative ways that people are engaging in restoration and that the natural world is demanding that itself be heard and be allowed agency. We need to just get out of the way of some of that. And I think that there'll be a lot of really good things for those two 15-year-old girls when they end up at 60 years old. A beautiful way to think about it, allowing these new technologies to amplify nature and, and to amplify mm -hmm. the life 
on this planet and allow it a fighting chance against our present day extinctions. Thank you, Kent Redford, for sharing your insights into harnessing new technologies to increase biodiversity, mitigate present day extinctions, and inviting us to question what is natural and what is artificial in the era of the Anthropocene, opening our eyes to the possibilities of synthetic biology. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you both very much. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Abby Gray with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Abby Gray. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hegenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.